everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This week, I have the pleasure of having two very special guests to talk about an incredible new resource that's been at least a year in the making, probably longer based on all the information that's presented. This is a guide for study participants in clinical trials that was developed with, by Roche in partnership with the autism community. My guests this week are Caroline Averius from Roche and Zach Williams from Vanderbilt University. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves because I'm sure I'm not gonna be uh, as good at it as I can be. So Caroline, Perfect. Thank you very much. Yes. So uh, my name is Caroline and I'm joining you today from uh, Basel, Switzerland in Europe, where I work for a biotech company called Roche. And I think you in the US, you are more familiar with the name Genentech. And here I work in a group that have the responsibility to bring in community voices and perspectives in everything that we develop here at Roche. So make sure that we actually do something that is meaningful and have a positive impact for the community and not because we think it's cool. So this could be, uh, you know, the development of our medicines, our digital tools, our diagnostic tools, or if we create outcome measures or endpoint scales, or creating really uh, important tools as this uh, resource, the guidebook that we're here to speak about today. And uh, I'm Zach Williams. I'm an uh, MD-PhD candidate at uh, Vanderbilt University in uh, neuroscience and in hearing and speech sciences. And I'm also an autistic self-advocate. Uh, I chair the uh, INSAR Autistic uh, Researchers Committee. And I've also been a, a, an autism consultant uh, with Rush for a couple of years now. Um, and so I've, I've been working with them closely on this project for the autism guidebook and uh, a few other things. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today about this. Many of you may have already heard of Zach or know Zach's name or even know him personally. So it's a real thrill to have him on today's podcast. So let's go ahead and get started. These are, um, this is a, a guide for study participants that is aimed at different audiences, including researchers, industry, the community, caregivers, um, a wide range of individuals. And I can tell you that this is much needed. Uh, even on this podcast, I use terms like randomized clinical trial and placebo and placebo dose and things like that, or, or study dose. And I have to, I do repeat, and that's fine, I'll keep repeating what they mean, but it's great to have one resource that describes why clinical trials are so important, how they can help people at different stages of their life, and also people with different levels of support needs, um, and also what people can expect as they enter a clinical trial, because these things are really important. ASF truly believes that research and science is how we get people with autism and autistic adults to have the best lives they can. So this is really important. So I wanna ask you guys, if you could give me a brief description, there's two different books here. Um, of course, they'll all be available on the ASF website. I'm gonna circulate them to many partners. Um, I'll put the links on this podcast summary so um, you'll have access to them. But um, can you give me a, kind of like a summary of the two different ones? Sure. Um, and so our group created two documents. So one is for researchers designing and conducting clinical trials. And 
The other is for members of the autism community who may be considering participating in a clinical trial themselves, um, if they're an autistic person or if they are a family member or support person for an autistic person enrolling their family member or the person they support in a clinical trial. So the researcher-focused guidebook is, is fairly long and dense. It's a 38-page PDF document that presents this big set of guidelines uh, for conducting patient-centered or person-centered clinical trials with autistic people and their families or supporters. Um, these guidelines, which uh, Rush co-produced with uh, us, this group we call the, the Council for Clinical Trials in Autism, which was a group of, uh, uh, of uh, autistic advocates and uh, people from the autism community, autism chair and uh, parents, caregivers, et cetera, um, using community participatory-based methods. Uh, it spans the entire clinical trial process from study design considerations to interactions with participants after the trial is finished and everything in between. Um, and this guidebook also contains a curated list of freely available resources, such as example consent forms, assent forms, social stories, information packets that researchers could potentially adapt to fit the needs of their own studies. It's a really rich resource that we, we are hopeful that researchers could use to, to help inform their, their trials. And people who even have very little experience with autism could feel confident um, in running a trial that is actually you know, going to uh, use best practices to um, help make these trials friendly to autistic folks and, and their um, support people at, after um, actually absorbing this information and using it. And so this second document, which is, is much shorter and, and easily absorbable, um, is for autistic people and their family members specifically. It's, it's more informational, and it discusses what exactly a clinical trial is, what they're useful for, and, and what to expect if one enrolls. Um, it also has sections on the advantages and disadvantages of joining clinical trials, um, important questions to ask one's provider about a clinical trial if one is interested, um, definitions of terms, things like uh, the, the words that Alicia says during the podcast, like placebo and randomization and double blinding. Um, and all of this is th are things we can hope will empower patients and their families to decide uh, whether they think participation is right for them, if they think it is. Um, the document also has links to a number of YouTube videos at the end that readers can watch to get more information about clinical trials in general outside of autism uh, if they want more information, as it is relatively short. Um, it's important to know this is also a fairly accessible document. It's not in plain language per se, but it is uh, made to be meant, uh, you know, layperson readable. And so it's not necessarily a document for scientists or people all who are, um, you know, doctorate students or you know, professors or anything like that, but really just regular folks who are thinking about getting involved in the science as participants um, and hopefully going to make that accessible to people without a scientific background. You mentioned the council here. Can you explain who the council was and who is involved in developing and editing um, and also disseminating? So who you mentioned the council. Tell us more about how this was created. Sure, I'll, I'll take a stab at that and maybe I'll hand over to you, Sack, if I miss something out or you can speak to about the dissemination as well. So um, in uh, the council, we have uh, eight different advocacy uh, members. So that's autistic self-advocates, SAC is one of them. Uh, but we also have members of European and US autism advocacy groups, such as Autism Science Foundation. We also have the Autism Parents Association from Malta. Autism Europe, Autismus Burgos from Spain, and ANSA from Italy. 
And uh, I think as far as we are concerned, this is really the first guidance on conducting clinical research in autism um, that has been co-created with members of the autism community. And as you also alluded to, Alicia, this has um, been taking some time. So we started already in end of 21. Uh, and, you know, where we met to really discuss the aims and the needs of the guidebook and the explainer, as I call the shorter uh, doc document. Uh, and once we have agreed upon the, how that outline uh, would look like, we started drafting um, both these documents based on our discussions, but also, as you can imagine, Roche has uh, been in the field of autism for quite some time now. So we have extensive research and engagement insights working together with the community. So we had loads of uh, insights already to put into the guidebook. And I think we had a fantastic process of working together. The engagement was really high. People built on each other comments, um, you know, addressed where there were gaps and people filled in. And sometimes we agreed to disagree, but I think in the end we did find a very good balance and we're all proud of the outcome. And one thing that was really important to all of us is that this hard work and co-creation should be shared with the wider community. So that's why we are, um, now releasing the guidebook and explainer under Creative Commons license, which means that, you know, the community can share, copy, redistribute, adapt, so they can translate the documents or build upon them further um, so that it can reach as many people as possible. Zach, do you want to speak a little bit about what's happening next for the dissemination of the guidebook and the explainer? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, one of the things that we are really hopeful is that people will actually read and use this guidebook. Um, and so we are now taking our dog and pony show on the road and uh, going to places like the ASF podcast so that we can advertise it around. Um, and so the people like you, our lovely listeners, can uh, hopefully find out about it and then go and read it. Um, and so um, other things that we're hoping to do is we are presenting it at uh, this year's Autism Europe conference, um, and we're also submitting it as an academic journal article um, to one of the autism journals. Um, we're also potentially um, going to get some news coverage for it um, as well. Um, and so all of these things together will hopefully get it a bigger presence in the broader autism community sphere. Um, and with all of those things together, we can hopefully, again, market it out into the community, just give it that press coverage and uh, um, the ability for uh, folks to just see it and uh, cite it in their work. Um, it would be great if people say, you know, we used our, our best practices from, uh, you know, these guidelines when designing our trial. And then the people who cite that trial and uh, decide to go on and uh, do more trials uh, continue to use those guidelines. I mean, these are all clearly lofty goals for the future, but I would I would love to see that happening if, uh, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, guide the field moving forward with these sort of uh, things. And um, you sent it to me in English. Thank you very much. That's my primary language. Will it be available in other languages? So I know Autismos Burgos from Spain, they're currently uh, collaborating with the local university to translate the guidebook into Spanish. Uh, and we at Roche, we're currently looking to uh, translate the explainer uh, into Spanish and Italian as well. Um, and we will also, you know, use it uh, 
when we speak about our trials to uh, have a way of explaining clinical trial processes. Um, but, you know, if, if uh, we're, let's see what the future brings. I would love to see it being translated into more languages. That would be great. And the title is um, Clinical Trials, uh, Participant-Friendly Clinical Trials in Autism. Um, so how does the information here uh, provided apply to other studies in general? You know, there's a lot of different types of autism research, or is it specific to clinical trials? And what does that mean? Um, sure. So we, we did design these guidebooks specifically for um, clinical trials that are clinical trials involving uh, intervention studies with autistic participants. Um, and, and so many of these recommendations are specific to those kinds of studies, um, though actually many of the uh, recommendations are more general. I mean, things that could certainly be taken to other aspects of autism research that are, for instance, uh, useful in longitudinal studies that have no intervention component, but just have repeated contact with participants and people coming back to the study site over and over and have repeated uh, contact with the study team. Alternatively, um, they would also potentially be useful if you were running a clinical trial that included autistic participants, but also other groups such as other neurodevelopmental disabilities like ADHD, intellectual disability, etc. Um, there also could be um, just uh, general clinical trial recommendations that are not necessarily specific to autism, but could just reflect good clinical practice, things like um, maintaining good communication with the study team and uh, having a 24-7 side effects hotline, et cetera, things that are um, kind of the good patient-centered practice that are not necessarily really autism-specific things at all, but were very much uh, put forward by our team as just reflecting um, ways that the trial uh, organizers could make the study better for everyone in you know, sort of a universal design type of way. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's that's probably um, going to be helpful no matter what kind of uh, trial you're running. But uh, you know, and at the same time, I do think that you know, for the most part, the guidebook does center on clinical trial, you know, intervention type studies, but the type of intervention can can vary and it doesn't necessarily have to be a medication. It could be a, a behavioral intervention. It could be, you know, no intervention at all. Um, and, and, you know, the advice could be pretty widely applicable. I thank you for saying that because there are some tips and tricks in this guidebook that I think all researchers who are recruiting people um, of all ages, of all, of, of everything could consider, including careful communication, materials should be succinct, provide in a variety of formats, talk about why the study is important, what the goals are. So I think that you're, that this, while this does apply to clinical trials, it absolutely has applicability across research. Caroline, what motivated Roche to put these two together? At Roche, we follow the science when we try to develop treatment options for the community. And in order for us to develop successful options, it is important to already very early in our development um, of research programs and clinical trial designs work together with communities so that we understand their needs and where to focus our efforts. And whilst juggling regulatory constraints, we need to keep uh, the needs of our research participant at heart. 
And over the past few years, we have been collaborating with the autism community across Europe and the US. We had many rich discussions and insights on how to make research more participant friendly. And I think we just felt that sharing this knowledge is crucial because it can be extremely difficult or even impossible uh, for autistic people and their supporters to participate in clinical trials if their various needs or characteristics uh, are not considered. So, you know, if we can help the way we collectively conduct research in autism, I think that's, you know, that's just the right thing to do. Uh, and of course, you know, having that said, uh, we at Roche are by no means perfect uh, and the way we conduct uh, trials will truly benefit uh, from this guidebook. There are really some great recommendations for us to take on board here as well. And when it comes to the explainer, we also had the feeling, you know, that there is uh, this need of addressing uh, or raising awareness of autism research and, you know, why it is important and how people can actually play a role in advancing science in autism forward. And um, a, a silly side note, but um, there's this wonderful book uh, that is, I think it's called, um, or in English, that it's called I May Be Wrong. And the writer, you know, goes about a um, how we should everyone go into a dialogue with an open mindset, be reflective and really listen to others' perspective, because you know what, you might be wrong. Uh, so this is a book that truly inspired me uh, and the way how I approach things because I can be a very stubborn person. And this is really what I hope for uh, the researchers in the autism community, that they, uh, our guidebook can inspire the way that they are thinking and maybe adapt their habits uh, and the way that they have been conducting research uh, until now. And then why two? So why have one for researchers and one for families or participants? You're awfully generous um, sharing this with other industry partners and kind of giving this, this guidebook. Um, I know you want to improve clinical trials for the whole community, but um, there's a lot of work that went into this by Roche. So tell us about the need for, we know the need for families um, and individuals what about for researchers and industry? In our initial discussions with the group, I think we identified two unmet needs that we felt best place to support. And one of them being that clinical trials does not always tend to consider the needs of autistic people and their supporters. And the other need being autistic people um, and their supporters generally have low awareness and understanding of clinical trial processes. So that's why we felt like, okay, we need to have two documents because one document uh, wouldn't fit for the, the two different needs. Uh, and I know I feel that in generally in the autism research community, there is this feeling of, you know, we do share data, we do share what we learn, even if our science is not meeting what we uh, want to achieve when, within our trials, but we do tend to share um, the outcomes so that other people can learn from them. So, yeah, as I said before, I think it's the right thing to do. Zach, so as an autistic adult, what's important in these guidebooks for people on the spectrum to know about participating in a clinical trial? 
Well, so one of the things that I, I think is particularly helpful within the, the participant uh, explainer are the questions to ask one's provider about a, a clinical trial. I think that uh, people, especially when going into a clinical trial, I mean, clinical trials can be great in terms of you can have a lot of advantages, you can get free medical care, sometimes this medical care is you know cutting edge, you can have uh, treatment that's not even on the market yet. It could be extremely effective. Uh, it may be a placebo, but you know there are disadvantages too, and it explains all of that. Um, so we have you know a nice list of the not only advantages but also the disadvantages in the explainer. I think that's a the great thing that we have in there. Um, but then these lists of questions are, are really nice to sort of empower people to ask the right questions about whether or not they you know that the trial is right for them just because you know on the at face value it could be uh doesn't mean that it is always going to be for instance some trials make people stop their existing medications um or you know stop uh, you know have restrictions on like what other interventions or therapies you can have during the trial without dropping out things like that um and these are other restrictions that you know a lot of folks don't actually consider when they uh, think about enrolling in a trial having those conversations before enrolling are extremely important and uh you know having these questions uh prepared and talking to the study team about that beforehand um, will really arm people with the information they need to go into a trial being confident that it's right for them and then having the right you know cost benefit calculus to uh, figure out whether that is actually going to be the right decision uh, because truly I think that you know one of the things that we we do hope that comes from this is that you know in addition to a participant friendly clinical trial being a good experience for people is that it's the the right decision for people we don't want people to enroll in clinical trials who shouldn't be there who don't feel like it was the right thing for them we want these trials to be helpful for everyone who enrolls or at least feel like it was a good experience for everyone who enrolls um and so if that's not the case a part of this should be finding the people who you know you know, not accidentally, but who enrolled in the trials, you know, in a way that was perhaps impulsive or, uh, you know, shouldn't have been in there in the first place and saying, well, here's this information that would have gotten you to maybe reconsider that decision and stop you from doing it in the first place. And that's just as important as getting people to enroll who should be in there. Um, and so hopefully that information, you know, can empower people to make better choices. And I, I think that's really important. Yeah, that is. Thank you for articulating that. Um, also, I know that there are autistic adolescents and adults who um, who feel that autism is part of their identity and are hesitant to participate in a clinical trial, at least when it comes to an intervention, because they don't want to be changed. They don't want to have the autism changed about them. They identify with that. That's not something they want altered in any way. Um, so how do you respond to that when you think about clinical trials that involve some sort of intervention? Sure. And so first off, I want to note that the goal of clinical trials can be pretty broad. The the clinical trials that this guidebook addresses don't have to actually be treating the, the core features of autism per se. Clinical trials that focus on treatment targets such as co-occurring mental or physical health conditions, language outcomes, sensory sensitivities, and many uh, you know, and things like that are 
you know, totally fair game in the autism research literature as well. And many autistic adults and adolescents uh, consider treatment developments in these areas among their top research priorities. Um, and all the same, clinical trial development in these areas goes by just the same guidelines. They're just different outcomes. Um, it's also important to note that some autistic people do actually find certain core aspects of their autism particularly impairing and do want to seek out intervention to reduce the disability caused by those traits. And those are the people who probably would want to end up enrolling in a clinical trial and uh, focused on changing core autism features. And whereas people who would not be interested in changing those features wouldn't. Um, I think that it really should be an individual's choice whether or not they would feel like they would want to enroll in a clinical trial on, you know, based on, let's say, improving socialization or something like that. Uh, and essentially, clinical trials and the interventions they represent are hopefully there for the individuals who want them and seek them out, and they shouldn't really be forced on people who don't. Um, I think that if you consider autism a part of your identity that shouldn't be changed, that should be respected, and we shouldn't coerce you into having that be changed whatsoever. But at the same time, I don't really feel that uh, it's bad or wrong to have options for the people who want things changed about that. There's certainly disabling aspects of autism, and there's no real agreement within the autistic community about, you know, where to draw the line on, uh, you know, what is or isn't changeable. I think it's kind of an individual's choice as to, um, you know, what that should be. Um, and so as far as, uh, you know, where to uh, intervene, I think that uh, we can still work to, um, you know, develop interventions in, in different places, uh, you know, the ethics of that certainly are can get murky. But uh, I, I think that in clinical trial land, I think that uh, given that we have the informed consent and assent process and all of the participation is voluntary, um, I'm, I'm at least confident that the folks who are enrolling for the most part, especially in like adult and adolescent trials, would want to be there. Thank you for saying that. Um, I also want to ask about uh, what about the researchers and how they can pitch their trials. And before I ask the question, I want to say to you researchers out there who are listing your studies on our participate in research dashboard, listen closely. So Zach, um, what's the what are the things that researchers can do to convey the importance of their study to the community? This came out in the guidebook. We're going to we're also going to link the guidebook to our participate in research portal page because people researchers need to see it just as much. But what are the things that researchers can do to convey the importance of their study to the autism community? Sure. So I, I think a lot of autism researchers can actually lose sight of the fact that the ultimate goal of, of autism research really is to improve the lives of autistic people. So essentially, when you're doing basic science work or work that's exploring you know, the underlying mechanisms of something or investigating a new research methodology, studies can actually be pretty far removed from any clinically meaningful changes in, in quality of life for, for autistic people. Not to say that they, they can't be affecting that down the line, but you know, the, the the um, ultimate goal of your study is probably to answer some more um, abstract scientific question a lot of the time. And so the best thing a researcher can do, in my opinion, especially when it comes to those more basic questions, is make clear to community members or the participants who may 
potentially be involved in their study, what the, the so what of, of their study is. What, what are the long-term benefits to the community from this line of research in terms of filling knowledge gaps, policy, clinical practice, education, et cetera? Anything that can turn the research from something abstract and esoteric to something real and relevant to the daily lives of participants will increase engagement quite a bit. So to reiterate that, how does your research affect the lives of people with autism? And be explicit and be clear about that. In the guidebook for researchers, what are some of the challenging lists for engaging the autism community? So when you think about researchers, what are some challenges that exist um, in making sure the autism community is paying attention, is interested, knows about what's going on in this area? This is a very good question, Adisham. Uh, so I think I see it as that there's two fundamental or bigger challenges. So one being that research is not that accessible. And the other is that there's really a lack of communication around the value um, that research can bring, coming back to what Sake actually just said. Um, and I think we need to make sure that we are collaborating with the community to build and define these areas of interest uh, and unmet needs because you know if we are considering new treatments the idea of treatment uh, for autism asak also um, previously mentioned has been splitting the community in the past you know there are those who see it as erasing their own or their loved ones identities whereas others see it as an option to improve their quality of life and I think it is therefore very important that we work together to define um, what kind of research in need them is needed and in tandem co-create resources like the guidebook to help others consider these points and making the community aware that you know they can actually get involved and in influence research. I think that that is uh, a lack in the community that is not uh, well aware or that people are not aware about that so I think there are some uh, improvements that can be done there. And when it comes to the accessibility of trials, part of the autism community are often excluded from recruitment uh, due to the inability to give clear consent to take part or because they don't have the right measures in place. And again, coming back to expectations and communication of explaining this, why they can't participate, it's so important. And for example, we heard from parents and teenagers that they would be willing to take part in clinical trials, uh, but they would prefer to do that during school holidays because it just makes it easier with you know the everyday life of teenagers. And still, there are so many uh, trial sites that are closing down during school holidays, which excludes uh, this group of teenagers to take place uh, or to take, uh, to take part in trials. So. I think there's many aspects on how we can may improve accessibility of trials. Um, we also need to ensure that we learn from the community about what can be done differently to reduce those barriers of participations and overall challenges of clinical trials. And understanding that, you know, sometimes the logistical needs is the difference between a full trial and an empty one. Uh, and it could really be uh, come down to something small like offering an on-site parking spot close to the trial site uh, or that the venues uh, are making the participant feel comfortable. This is going to 
going to require some infrastructure, I would imagine, infrastructure at by the researchers, infrastructure by industry partners, um, at the universities, at institutions that conduct research. So what does this look like? What sort of infrastructure do you think is needed? How can we all prepare for this? I think we uh, speak about the infrastructure a great deal um, in the guidebook, and there's some key examples that is worth mentioning. I think you also addressed it already, um, Alicia, with the communication, that we have accessible uh, communication channels that are, you know, different. Um, we mentioned earlier that, you know, side effect reporting 24-7 is key. But what if we have nonverbal participants in our trials? Then we, you know, we can't just have a hotline. You know, we need to make sure then that we can have the people can send a text or have send an email. So we, you know, it's about opening up our um, our minds and think about eventualities, and that we actually have trials that fit for the population we are conducting the trial in. Another thing that I just mentioned about the logistics, we hear that most concerns from participants and supporters stem from logistical issues. So tackling these will really reduce dropouts and having that parking lot really close to the trial site uh, can really make a difference. Another thing I think is important uh, as well is the ability to adapt. Um, and think about the ability to personalize clinical trial experience uh, to the extent possible and rapidly adapt um, based on feedback. And, you know, there could be maybe there are visits that does not necessarily need to be on site visits. Maybe we can do them um, online. Uh, but then again, I'm sure that there are participants who would prefer an on-site visit uh, compared to an online one? And is it possible to be flexible? Can we allow both? And I think these are like questions we researchers should ask themselves um, when they set up trials. So this question will go to both of you. So I'm gonna start with Zach. Is that, um, how do you think these guidebooks will influence future study development? Or how do you, how do you hope this will happen? So. You know, there's a lot of recommendations. What, which ones do you think we should tackle first, or what do you, what do you think is kind of the the evolution of um, implementing these ideas? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that is uh, really key in the um, recommendations is that there is a um, major recommendation to actually co-design trials with members of the, the autism community. Um, and this is something that I don't think is yeah, frequently done a lot, uh, especially in industry. I think Rush is an exception in that regard, but I, I would doubt that a lot of uh, the standard autism trials that you've seen published in the literature have a, a community component. And uh, my guess is, is many of those uh, you know, who do have probably relied primarily on, on caregivers um, and not autistic people themselves. Um, and you know, not to say that that is entirely um, you know, unnecessary uh, in all cases, but uh, I think that it would be really beneficial in a lot of cases to see because when you have the actual population 
population who would be the trial participants um, helping to design the trial, you run into things like this. I, you know, people coming and giving advice about study design that is, uh, you know, people who are the the researchers are blindsided by things, saying, "Oh my God, I had no idea that study parking was this much of an issue. I have my faculty parking spot at this institution, and you know, I never realized how awful the guest parking." here was um, and so on and so forth. There are just uh, things that really are, uh, you know, um, that that additional perspective of the patients themselves co-designing the trial can really um, bring it forward and uh, actually um, make the trials a, a bit, you know, substantially more um, participant friendly, in my opinion. And I think if, if one thing is taken away from this, I, I would hope it is that. Um, but in addition, I, I think that the um, the recruitment guidelines, the, the things about outcome measurements, the things about um, just general considerations for communicating with participants, I mean, mu much of the study design components, I think, could really be easily implemented if other people are designing a trial. Um, and a lot of these things are, um, you know, require additional funding and planning, obviously, and infrastructure. And so depending on the resources available, it may be difficult, but but some things are just, you know, an additional, um, you know, you, you simply have to put it into the plan, like it wouldn't take any more um, like time or effort, it was just a different way to think about something. Um, and with that, really, all you had to do would be to plan for it. And so that's the low hanging fruit. And I really do hope that uh, people can, you know, take up those recommendations as soon as they they read the guidebook. So um, I'm just hopeful that that people do start reading this, and uh, it would be helpful in, in more folks designing and, and conducting these trials. Um, I, I guess in the longer term, also, I'm, I'm actually hopeful that that these guidebooks will um, just make more people interested in this field. One thing that I think is uh, is a hope of mine is that um, overall, this will just garner more interest in the entire field of, of clinical trials in autism. I think that uh, there's been a lot of talk in the field about how autism research has an, an evidence problem, and we, we don't have necessarily enough evidence to support really any intervention um, as, as being quote-unquote evidence-based to the uh, extent that other aspects of, uh, of medicine do. Um, and so let's fix that. And how do we fix that? We do more trials. Um, and how do we do more trials? We get more people to run them. We get more people to participate in them. So, well, let's do that. <laughs> you brought up an excellent point, which is that so often Autistic individuals, either adolescents or adults, I hate to say children because they children always need the help of a caregiver, but autistic adolescents and adults throughout their life have been underrepresented in the design of, of clinical trials or research studies in autism. And some of the kind of the, um, the explanation for that is in the, the, the book itself where it talks about kind of the, the ever-changing ebb and flow of needs of individuals both with high support needs and then with um, lower support needs in the lifespan, right? So things change for every person, but the role autistic individuals need to be included, but sometimes it's their caregivers that um, also need to be represented. So I like how you advocate for the inclusion of autistic adolescents and adults, but don't exclude 
other members of the community that in fact um, will have an important role in the design of a study. Is that about, did I, I capture that about correctly? Absolutely. I think the, I mean, what we wanted to do is to have, you know, the better uh, researchers understand um, the autism community uh, and their families, what um, journeys they take through life, be it prof more profound autistic people or, uh, you know, or, and their caregivers or um, autistic adults, the better they can address the challenges of what it means being in a trial. So that's why we added that element into the guidebook as well. Like you need to know the population you're doing research mm -hmm. in. Is there anything else you want to add? Is there anything about these documents that I didn't ask about? I'm sure that there's a lot. <laughs> um, this was just meant to give people just a little bit of a a tidbit about what um, what these these documents are about, and to encourage people to read them. But is there anything else that you want to mention that didn't get discussed already? I guess one one last thing is I did mention it very briefly in the the beginning, but it, it did kind of uh, go quickly. But at, at the end, there there is a, a pretty long list of of curated resources that our our team put together. Um, and so this is includes things on community co-creation, example consent assent forms, information packets for participants. And so these are things that researchers can use and adapt for their own studies. Um, and these aren't things that we created, but things that we pulled together that were already available on other researchers' websites and things, um, usually from other parts of autism research. Um, and so these were kind of the best of the best from all around the, the globe. Um, and so I just wanted to, to highlight this because really these are just excellent materials and I, you know, if other people designed their materials this well, I think autism research would already be a lot more participant friendly. So just, uh, you know, a plug for all of these people, many of whom are potentially even listening to these podcasts. So if your materials are on here, great job. You are wonderful researchers who are already doing a good job. <laughs> So yeah, those are at the end that you're going to see there's two things. There's the guidebook and at the end there is a section called resources, which are great. I haven't um, gone through all of them, but I've gone through some of them. And then on what Caroline calls the explainer, there's also a list of really amazing YouTube videos that I know you guys had um, a lot of say in. They were designed by you guys. Um, and that means the, the group of you, not just Roche. So I would encourage everyone to view both of them. I think the, the video vignettes will be great to put on uh, or to link from a number of different organizations, websites that um, have individuals who are interested in participating. Um, so Caroline, I'm sorry, I skipped over you. Is there anything else you wanted to add that I missed? Um, maybe just to say from an industry perspective, I think that work that we've uh, done here together uh, sets a strong um, precedent to involve representatives from other therapy um, areas, more in clinical trial design. You know, we are already working on being more inclusive and embedding even more community perspectives in research. I think we're in a good way, but uh, there's always room for improvement. And I'm happy to share that I also have colleagues uh, that will take our guidebook and explainer and adapt them to other conditions um, that we're working in at Roche, such as Angelman syndrome or Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, that's uh, very inspiring. 
And um, my wish, uh, personal wish would be that more people get involved in research, not only as participants uh, in trials, but also in research itself to share, you know, their experience and guide the focus on generating evidence that is relevant for um, those living with conditions. And maybe just to one last thing is that I, I just feel super humbled to have had the opportunity to work with this fantastic group and I've uh, learned so much during the development process of the guidebook and I will definitely make sure uh, that the scientists at Roche include these considerations in their future work. And I also want to put a plug in, if you are an autistic individual that is interested in providing expertise and guidance and personal experience to a research study, come at me, send me an email. Um, let's talk and figure out a way that you can get more involved in ASF research. So thank you so much to both of you. This was an amazing podcast. And um, as I mentioned, I'm sure everyone's now chomping at the bit to look at these guidebooks and this explainer. So they will be on the podcast link and the podcast summary. Um, they'll also be linked from the Autism Science Foundation um, homepage and then also the participate in research page. Um, and also we're going to put it on our agenda page, which is the Alliance for the Genetic Etiologies of Neurodevelopmental Disorders and Autism. So, and I'm happy to distribute. If anyone wants to contact me and I'll send it to you if you can't find it. So thank you guys so much and uh, good luck. And uh, I hope to hear more about this soon and hear about what you're doing next very soon. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.
how does your research affect the lives of people with autism? And be explicit and be clear about that. In the guidebook for researchers, what are some of the challenging lists for engaging the autism community? So when you think about researchers, what are some challenges that exist um, in making sure the autism community is paying attention, is interested, knows about what's going on in this area? This is a very good question, Adisha. Uh, <laughs> so I think I see it as that there's two fundamental or bigger challenges so one being that research is not that accessible and the other is that there's really a lack of communication around the value um, that research can bring coming back to what Saka actually just said um, and I think we need to make sure that we are collaborating with the community to build and define these areas of interest uh, and unmet needs because you know if we are considering new treatments the idea of treatment uh, for autism, as Sack also um, previously mentioned, has been splitting the community in the past. You know, there are those who see it as erasing their own or their loved ones' identities, whereas others see it as an option to improve their quality of life. And I think it is therefore very important that we work together to define um, what kind of research in need is needed and in tandem co-create resources like the guidebook to help others consider these points and making the community aware that you know, they can actually get involved and in influence research. I think that that is uh, a lack in the community that is not uh, well aware or that people are not aware about that. So I think there are some uh, improvements that can be done there. And when it comes to the accessibility of trials, part of the autism community are often excluded from recruitment uh, due to the inability to give clear consent to take part or because they don't have the right measures in place. And again, coming back to expectations and communication of explaining this, why they can't participate, it's so important. And for example, we heard from parents and teenagers that they would be willing to take part in clinical trials, uh, but they would prefer to do that during school holidays because it just makes it easier with you know, the everyday life of teenagers. And still, there are so many uh, trial sites that are closing down during school holidays, which excludes uh, this group of teenagers to take place uh, or to, yeah, to take part in trials. So. I think there's many aspects on how we can may improve accessibility of trials. Uh, we also need to ensure that we learn from the community about what can be done differently to reduce those barriers of participations and overall challenges of clinical trials. And understanding that, you know, sometimes the logistical needs is the difference between a full trial and an empty one. Uh, and it could really be uh, come down to something small like offering an on-site parking spot close to the trial site uh, or that the venues uh, are making the participant feel comfortable. This is going to require some infrastructure, I would imagine, infrastructure at by the researchers, infrastructure by industry partners, um, at the universities, at institutions that conduct research. So what does this look like? What sort of infrastructure do you think is needed? How can we all prepare for this? Exactly. <laughs> um, I think we uh, speak about the infrastructure a great deal um, in the guidebook, and there's some 
key examples that is worth mentioning. I think you also addressed it already, um, Alicia, with the communication, that we have accessible uh, communication channels that are, you know, different. Um, we mentioned earlier that, you know, side effect reporting 24-7 is key. But what if we have nonverbal participants in our trials? Then you know we can't just have a hotline. You know we need to make sure then that we can have that people can send a text or have send an email. So we you know it's about opening up our um, our minds and think about eventualities and that we actually have trials that fit for the population we are conducting the trial in. Another thing that I just mentioned about the logistics. We hear that most concerns from participants and supporters stem from logistical issues. So tackling these will really reduce dropouts and having that parking lot really close to the trial site uh, can really make a difference. Another thing I think is important uh, as well is the ability to adapt um, and think about the ability to personalize clinical trial experience uh, to the extent possible and rapidly adapt um, based on feedback. And, you know, there could be, maybe there are visits that does not necessarily need to be on-site visits. Maybe we can do them um, online. Uh, but then again, I'm sure that there are participants who would prefer an on-site visit uh, compared to an online one. And is it possible to be flexible? Can we allow both? And I think these are like questions we researchers should ask themselves um, when they set up trials.